I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. On this podcast, we share with you encounters with natural wonders and also encounters with people who are themselves natural wonders. It's a mix of amazing stories of life with art and with society and animals and everything from gardens to comets, because there is constant opportunity to experience wonder in this world. Jay Wellens is a pediatric neurosurgeon. What that means is that he performs brain or nerve surgery on kids. Well, let me actually broaden that a bit because he might be found operating on a fetus still in the womb or on a teenager approaching adulthood or anyone in between. Dr. Wellens has cut and stitched and saved lives by repairing some of the most delicate, wondrous tissues tucked away inside our bodies. In our shoulders, for just one example, the formation of nerves known as the brachial plexus. This beautiful group of nerves that exit from the neck and and they weave together into a pretty consistent pattern and then they unweave into the nerves that innervate the muscles of the arm. It, It almost looks like macrame. It's just beautiful. Wellens is professor of neurological surgery at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center, one of only 250 pediatric neurosurgeons in the country. 25 years in practice are now reflected in his new book, All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his young patients, and their stories of grace and resilience. Pay attention to that title, All That Moves Us. We'll be talking today about how the brain literally moves us, to action, speech, and thought. But there's a lot more motion than just that in this title. There's obviously the emotional component, I'm talking about all the things that stir us, all the things that affect our spirits, our feelings. And then there's also those moments when we reach a tipping point in our decision-making. We feel compelled to action, as when a brain surgeon has to act quickly, decisively, in the heat of the moment. You can imagine that Dr. Wellens faces critical moments when he has to make split-second decisions, bringing to bear all of his skill, his confidence, his experience. Sometimes he's even moved by a willingness to push back against protocol. That's a kind of willingness you just don't acquire overnight. He tells the story of how once during his residency he found himself in a life-or-death situation. Something had to be done quickly, except the patient was in a unit where very strict guidelines were in place. In this first story he's about to tell us, he sets the scene by describing the unpredictable life of a resident and all the pressures that can converge even when there's no time to waste. When you're a resident and training in neurosurgery, you're taking care of all kinds of things. You're going to the emergency room and you're talking to the 92-year-old woman who's just lost her husband from a large brain bleed that nothing that you do is going to make a difference. And then 10 minutes later, you're getting called to the pediatric ICU to put a drain in to treat a child's acute hydrocephalus or blockage of fluid in their brain. And all of a sudden you put it in and two minutes later they wake up and they talk to their families again. It's just an amazing kind of metronomic-like existence that you have for quite some time. I had a a situation where I was called to see a patient that a youngish woman who had basically just had an acute stroke and was in a unit that was not typically one where we had patients. I talked to my attending and my attending said, you got to bring her down. She was close to death, close to brain death. And time is of essence. And she really had been normal about 15 or 20 minutes before. And so I just didn't know any of the people there because it was not a place I'd been a lot of times. I was like, well, I got to go to the OR. And it was basically a back and forth. Like, well, we have to get so-and-so for transport or we have a protocol for that. I said, no, we have to get her down now or she's going to die. Well, it was just, we're going to call your attending. And I, I begged him, please call him. And then all of a sudden he shows up at the door and he walks in and examines her and she's progressed to brain death. And he said, I thought you were going to get her down. And I said, I'm sorry, sir, I tried. And he said, well, she's dead. And she's dead because you didn't do your job. Then he looked in the eye of everybody else in the room who had kind of been a part of it. I think it was the need to make sure every person in the room knew 
what had happened and that there was a responsibility there. And whether or not with her having minimal brainstem activity, she would have ultimately recovered, like, we don't know that. I do know that we sure wanted to try. And that really helped shape how hard I push and what I do. And I've ripped the monitors off a child and brought them up from the ER. And I don't mean to be dramatic about it. I'm not particularly proud of that because there are protocols that are important. And I think modern hospitals now are set up where things like we have a protocol, that stuff like that's much less likely to happen. They get in the way of patient care. But I've also defended residents for getting patients up in the OR who were acutely stroking. And basically the patient had their clot removed endovascularly and they were sent home the next day neurologically intact. And so I think that particular lesson taught me a lot. It also was not lost on me that after that happened an hour and a half later with the same attending, I'm doing an operation to take out a tangle of blood vessels in another young woman's temporal lobe. And we do that case together and he says, nice job. It's this metronomic-like existence that, like I mentioned, that just happens in our field where you go from these high highs to these low lows and back again. You know, a, a story you tell that I think is a nice companion story. The one that we just heard was about not getting the treatment in time. But then there's one getting treatment really quickly with a Black Hawk helicopter. This story, called 90 Minutes from You by Ground, is actually one of the reasons why I decided to write the book. It was in my first year of practice. I was in the children's hospital. It was my first year of being faculty, and it was a Saturday morning. I'd round it. I'd put my feet up on my desk. I was going to read some journal articles, and I got a page and returned the call to an outside doctor in an emergency room that was about an hour and a half away. And he said, Doc, I've got a nine-year-old girl. She's got a acute subdural hematoma, blood clot on the side of her brain. It's pushing her brain over. Her pupil's dilated. She's not moving one side. She's comatose. And all of that are signs of brain pressure. We reached out and found this little girl now all grown up, Jensen Jones Henderson. We were in a head-on collision in Auburn, Alabama, on our way to an Alabama football game in Birmingham. The other car had just not been paying attention and driving basically recklessly and um, just swerved across the median and hit us head on. And I was taken to East Alabama Medical Center first, but then they noticed that I had had a head injury. So they called Children's Hospital, where Dr. Jay Wellens was working at the time. And he said, will you take her? I said, absolutely. I said, but why don't you have her on the way already? And he said, well, the weather's too bad between here and Birmingham. At the time, I was living in Birmingham, Alabama. And he said the helicopters aren't flying, and it was terrible weather outside. I could see it, the wind blowing and the whole thing. We were trying to figure out what to do. He said, she's 90 minutes from you by ground. And she'd been long enough trapped in the car that it would have put her outside kind of this three-hour window, this kind of magical window to try to get surgery done. I looked at my desk, and there's a picture of my dad who had passed away a few years before. And he had been a commander of a Air National Guard base in Meridian, and he was in the picture, he was standing next to his F-4 wearing his flight suit and holding his flight helmet with a big smile on his face. And I started thinking about flight suits, and I said to the ER doc, I said, hey, are those Blackhawks still flying near you? Because maybe, and he said, yeah, those guys will fly on anything. I'll call the Blackhawks. And I said, I'll get the OR ready. About 20 minutes later, that coffee cup that I'd set on my desk started to ripple like in Jurassic Park when the T-Rex is approaching, <laughs> except this was like, boom, 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 boom. And then I could feel it in the plate glass window, thunk, 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 thunk. And I could feel it in my chest, thunk, 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 thunk. And I looked out the window and all the rain and the swirl, and I looked up and there was a Black Hawk helicopter hovering over the children's hospital. And they were lowering this little girl down. And I was like, I better, I got downstairs to the ER and there are these, all the nurses and ER team was responding and getting her ready to go to surgery. And there were these two flight medics all in their, their flight suit gear, drenched, literally just water dripping off of them. And uh, one of them heard my name and kind of immediately like snapped to attention. The soldiers actually wouldn't leave my side till they hand delivered me to Dr. Wellens. They saluted him, you know. And I was like, hold on, soldier, we should be saluting you because you guys have just saved this girl's life. And basically, we got her to the operating room. We did the craniotomy. They took off the blood clot. 
and waited afterwards for her to wake up. And gradually she opened her eyes and started to follow commands, which was a really great sign. And we knew that we brought her back from over the edge. But, you know, she still had some weakness on that one side and she still had to get over a fair amount. He was just, he was always like down at my level, whether I was in the wheelchair because I couldn't walk, you know, for several months after the car wreck and my balance was off. He also had several interns following him, like little flies and, you know, taking notes and stuff. He was just like, wow, this is Jensen. Let me tell you all about Jensen's story. And they were all like basically wiping away tears and stuff. And um, so he was just amazed that I was still there because I lost over 600 cc's of blood from my brain. And each time I would see her either on rounds or later on in the clinic or later on as she continued to recover, she made these tremendous strides. And, and then pretty soon it wasn't just rehab strides. It was back in school. It was back on the headmaster's list. It was winning a local pageant. It was becoming the school mascot and cheering at games. After I didn't need to see her in clinic anymore, it was going to college, going to grad school. And then one day in a completely different city in a different office, instead of it being updates from her family, it was a handwritten letter from her. And it was inviting me to her wedding. And in the letter, she just said how thankful and grateful she was for all that had happened to get her where she was in this life. And for the ER doctor that figured out how to call the Blackhawks and the army medics that got her there. For me, it was just a kind of this remarkable realization. And I realized how grateful I was to Jensen because that was really when I was learning how hard to push and, and what to expect. He took a chance on saving my life and I owe it to him, I think. So I've always just kept him in the back of my mind, like, hey, I need to send him a letter, like a memo that like, hey, I overcame these barriers, like pass a math course or grad school. And then like, hey, I'm getting married. Like, I wanted to tell him, you helped so much. I just felt like I owed it to him. Like, hey, thank you. That was early in my career and so many kids got the positive impact of that experience. We can go the extra mile. We can do what needs to be done because there's a person there that just needs somebody to work the problem. And there's a full and meaningful life to love and to be loved. Recently, I was, I was in Oxford, Mississippi, and, and I had the opportunity to talk at Square Books, which is a terrific bookstore in Oxford. And Jensen and her husband came. And I've read that story, I don't know, 50 times. And, you know, I've been able to read that story. And about two thirds of the way through. Near the end of the reading, he got a little choked up. And then he said, I'm sorry, this is the first time I've actually read this part of the story to the person that's about Jensen. And so I just kind of briefly waved my hand and everybody was like, oh my goodness, because nobody had any idea that I was there. Then everybody got emotional, but it was a really a meaningful moment for her to be there. And just the whole thing is just, uh, it's remarkable. Well, two things I have to pick up on here. And one is your father. That's one strand where I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But first, I'm not going to try to tempt you to say, well, that was meant to happen because you're solving problems, some problems in life, like anybody else, some you solve well, some you don't solve so well. But looking back on it, the glance at the picture of your father that says military, oh, Blackhawks, oh, maybe there's a solution there. And then coming through all the way to her wedding, when you kind of do the dot-to-dot of events, how do you size that all up? Well, that's a metaphysical question, Marcus. I think... um, What I need right now is a pediatric metaphysician. (laughs) Well, I'm still in training for that, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) That takes a lifetime. Jay Wellens may very well be humble about his place in the universe, you know, circumspect and even cautious when it comes to claiming too much about providential outcomes in the critical work that he does. But he did mention to me that just as his book, All That Moves Us, was coming out, his publisher launched an Instagram campaign that featured the voices of former patients and a striking number of them, together with their families, 
view the hand of some sort of providence in their personal stories. It's clear when you listen to them. Dr. Willens has played a pivotal role in their faith journeys. They describe him as a person in the right place at the right time with the right training to do exactly what was needed. Here's a sampling of the kinds of things people have said. Dr. Willens quickly informed us that if he was to save our daughter's life, he needed to act now. We saw a humble confidence in Dr. Willens. I could fully trust him to be honest with my prognosis. I am no longer able to see, so I had to learn how to do everything that I could do when I could see all over again. I'm a lot stronger and more capable than I realized, and that this tough time in my life has made me strong enough to face anything. The Lord has been by my side. I am inspired by the message, walk by faith, not by sight. Surgeries and recovery were nothing short of miraculous. Above all, I thank God. I'm inspired by the verse from 2 Kings 25. I've heard your cries and felt your tears, and I will heal you. Trust the process. These posts were written by former patients or close relatives named Laura, Alyssa, Hannah, and Hayden, and they were read by some of our associates here at BYU Radio. In just a moment, we're going to probe a little deeper into this conversation with Dr. Jay Wellens to learn about the influence of his father on his medical career, and as you're going to see, far more influence, far more inspiration than just that photo on his desk. You know, the photo that inspired him to put out a call for a Black Hawk helicopter. Although I have to say, that story alone brings me immense gratitude for what seems like, well, a couple of miraculous things. The miracle of a machine that can safely transport you through a pouring rainstorm to a hospital. And then the the miracle of a person there waiting for you who knows exactly what to do when you arrive. Jay Wellens is author of All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his young patients, and their stories of grace and resilience. I'm Marcus Smith. You're listening to Constant Wonder. Tell me more about that father in the photo, the the dad of yours posing next to a fighter plane, the F-4. I suspect there is some real formative experience there in your father-son relationship. Yeah, well, that's interesting. My dad's journey was remarkable, too. His own dad had a pretty successful dry cleaning stores in the capital of Mississippi here. And then they burnt down and went bankrupt. And dad basically had to kind of get himself through the rest of college. And in the meantime, he had a love of flying. And he was able to join the Air National Guard after after spending some time in the Air Force. And, you know, he had worked with the doctor at some point during his life. And he had... Loved that, and at some point, right on the cusp of going into the business world, he said, I'm going to make a play for trying to go to medical school because he felt called to that. And he made the MCAT scores. He got accepted. But but I saw the letters where he tried to get it paid for to the military or other institutions to try to get funding for himself to be able to go to medical school and still be able to provide for his family. And it just didn't work. And so he had to let that dream aside. And, And then all of a sudden, I was born, and I used to accuse him of kneeling next to my bed at night and whispering medicine into my ear when I would sleep. (laughs) When I was a kid, pilots, doctors, they seemed equally heroic. Maybe this man, Jay's father, could have been just fine in either vocation, medicine, aviation, serving as a role model for his boy, Jay. As it happened, he did not get his first choice in careers, But the boy got to see something really cool, having a pilot for a dad. Most kids are in awe of pilots, you know? I think like any kid, I was obsessed with um, the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo missions. And having your dad as a jet pilot just adds to that sense of wonder. I mean, I flew with him so many times. But being a physician was not to be his path, but it ended up being my path. And I went into medical school to be a family medicine doctor and learn about the human condition, maybe write about it, and, and get paid in chicken and vegetables in South Mississippi, just to be like the doctors I knew. Boil the towel, Mabel, there's a baby coming, you know, that kind. And all of a sudden, you you begin to gravitate towards something like neurosurgery, and, and you just kind of lay all that down at the altar of neurosurgery. Jay, you tell a story of a young patient named Megan. But for me, as I was learning about Megan, it really is kind of a story about your relationship with your own daughter named Fair. Because at some point, 
fair got to meet Megan. Would you tell us what happened yeah. there? So, you know, Megan is uh, this phenomenal young woman now who basically had a substantial arteriovenous malformation in the back part of her brain called the cerebellum. And it was not anything anybody knew anything about. And she basically just had an uh, acute rupture one day and just became comatose, kind of right in her mother's arms. And I think it's one of those situations where parents initially think that the children are kidding. How could this be happening? The child that falls into their porridge one day at breakfast. But all of a sudden, it's this wash of a realization that this is really happening. This happened to Megan, and her parents got her to the local hospital, and they made their way to the children's hospital. And basically, Megan was on the cusp of death. That's a place where we often meet children and family in the emergency room or in the intensive care unit. We were able to, to intervene pretty quickly. We were able to get in and divert some of the backed up fluid in her brain and then get her to the operating room and, and take out the blood clot and take out the abnormal tangle of blood vessels. And then she began the process of waking up. But initially, as a lot of kids do or a lot of people do that have some type of significant neurologic event, emergent event, a rupture of an aneurysm or a blood vessel malformation or a car accident or a, a tumor that presents in certain ways. She was, she'd had a neurologic uh, disability and hers was pretty substantial. Megan had a blood clot the size of a plum in her cerebellum, which controls walking and standing. And when she left the hospital for rehab, she needed assistance to walk and she could only say a few words. As I'm listening to you relate the circumstances here, I'm hearing in your voice all in the day's work. It's almost like you're an auto mechanic, you know, and, <laughs> and this is routine for you. Yeah. Uh, for me to hear this, if, and if I were a parent, this would be anything but routine. Right. Uh, and, and so uh, all in the day's work, easy to talk about, routine? Well, I think for me, because I know how the story ends, or I know where, where we are now, I know that gradually Megan recovered. And not only did she recover a little bit, she recovered a lot. Jay Wellens says, a lot. How much is a lot in this particular patient's case? Well, he actually got to see Megan in action at a kid's triathlon. And the cool part of this story is that his family also got to see the results of his work. I mean, just the brain's ability to recover is, particularly in children, is just... Um, it's just astounding. It's just amazing when the first time I saw her back in clinic because she had had such a tremendous recovery. Well, what was this triathlon? It's a wonderful event at our children's hospital here at Vanderbilt, and it's the Try My Best Triathlon. It's basically where a, a child that has some disability is paired with a child that does not. And so both of my kids came. My son Jack was paired with one little boy that had pretty severe autism. My daughter, Fair, was paired with a little girl with a trisomy. And they are paired with them the whole race. When they get in the water, they help them swim. And if they can't swim, they, they put their hand on their shoulder and they swim for them. Or if kids are really developmentally delayed, they put them in a little, little inflatable dinghy. And then they help them get out of the water. And then they help them get on these assisted bikes and do a little bike around the block. And then they come back and they make one or two loops around the track. And then, then they run right down the middle of the, at the time it was at an indoor uh, football facility. They run right down the middle and everybody's lined up on the sides and they're clapping um, and they cross the finish line. Well, you know, Megan was, she was the symbolic number one. She was asked to be the first person to go and her brother was her match. And it was clear that she was there to beat her brother. And so it was remarkable to see as they're both running as hard as they can down that final stretch where they come underneath the inflatable finish line. You know, she's literally elbowing her brother back so that she could finish first. It was just terrific to see. But you weren't the only one who was watching Megan. Uh, will, will you describe your daughter Fair's interaction with Megan? Well, it was uh, before the race started and everybody was getting their gear on. But we were standing there and all of a sudden I saw Cadesta, who's Megan's mom, and she came up and said, oh, Dr. Wellens, Megan's here. You know, and so here comes Megan running up and her dad, you know, her family came up and 
they were so excited and fair was standing there and it was, you know, a girl that's her similar age and they were talking and, and it just spontaneously came up. Well, you know, how did you know my dad? And it was, oh, well, your dad operated on me. And, you know, Cadesta leaned forward and said, and your dad saved Megan's life. And uh, just that, you know, that look that came across Fair's face, um, Megan pointed out the incision, you know, the scar on the back of her head. And Fair looked at Megan and she looked back at me and she looked at Megan. And you could just see this realization kind of wash across her face. It was, uh, um, I think she finally realized like, you know, like what dad did. This is why dad gets up in the middle of the night or this is why he has to leave dinner from time to time or he's not at my soccer game. It's for this kind of reason. And, and I tell you, a follow-up on that, Marcus, is that at the one of the book readings we had recently, Megan and her family were there. It was just a remarkable moment for for me and for the folks that were there to to look and just see this phenomenal young woman that she's grown into. So I know how the story goes. So I think to some extent that's why it's easier to present something that's so phenomenally difficult for families in a way that is maybe more of a narrative. I mean, to some extent, it's all in a day's work. That's kind of the part and parcel of what we're supposed to do in pediatric neurosurgery. But when you roll up your sleeves and knead the dough and get into the mix of it with families, it's oftentimes the very, when you're meeting people, it's the very worst day of their lives. The reason I wanted to have you relate that to us is because a lot of people think uh, pediatric neurosurgeon or pediatrician or any pediatric kind of expertise, you, the first thing you say to yourself is, oh, that's a doctor who works with kids. I think that's a fallacy. I think you are a doctor who is also a father of a daughter, and you're always dealing with parents at time of crisis with their children, of course. And That's important. Let me be clear. Your technical ability is important. And your ability to parse out problems versus not problems. That's really important too. But but part and parcel of that is the ability to communicate with parents. That becomes a realm you have to navigate in a way that I, I'm just wondering if they prepare you for that and, and give you any leg up on, on how to yeah. be with families in crisis. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. And that is something that we are starting to look at in a more formal way as we train our residents to move through to completion of their seven years of residency, which is a long time after medical school. So, you know, it's 11 years of medical training that we're asking people to do. So surely in there, in addition to technical ability and um, diagnostic and problem-solving ability, we can also help engineer and allow to flourish the ability to communicate and, and be with your families in these difficult moments. I'm going to get just a little abstract here with a metaphor. I think I'll use a wall, a wall that separates. Uh, You have the dura in the brain. That's that sheath-like leathery material that you describe that below the skull and encases the, the brain itself. And that boundary line is one that you're constantly navigating if you're being invasive, doing some kind of a surgery. But there's also a boundary line kind of in your heart and mind as you're doing a surgery where you are bracketing off all kinds of things to focus on that little patch where you've removed some skull to take your surgical instruments and and your focus is so intense that once you're there, I'm guessing you can't let your mind stray to wonder about Megan's mother out in the the waiting room. Yeah, no, you're you're very much right about that. If you do, it's kind of a place where Introspection is important, I think, and when you're operating, thinking through your steps and understanding the implications that they can have, critically important. But if you wander too far into that place, then for sure it can paralyze you. And you're in a moment where the blood clot needs to come out, the tumor needs to come out, the blood vessel malformation needs to come out. You know, you're, you're there to complete what it is you came to do. And I mean, I can just tell you this odd thing happens when you're operating. It's like a time dilation or you just forget what time is like. And you just, you're just you just so laser focused on what you're doing. It, it just clears away 
anything else that's happening. If your focus is on getting the middle part of the tumor out and rolling it away from the sides of the normal brain and dissecting it off the cranial nerves or, or whatever it is that you're tasked with doing to help that child, that patient that day, for the most part, your focus is, is just laser locked on that. And just like you said, if you begin to think too much about what's happening on the outside of that walled off, that toweled off, those four square towel, you know, that, that area there, it, it can paralyze you. Sometimes when I'm talking to families about surgery, you know, I'll talk about the reason to do it and then the comp- risk of complications and then kind of what to expect afterwards. And then I'll always say, I- I've been through surgery myself and I've had family members go through surgery. So I know how important it is to get that phone call about every hour and an hour and a half. And so typically our nurses are outstanding and they'll call out every hour and an hour and a half. But I'm not actively thinking about that. And inevitably the parents are like, don't worry about that. We don't want you worrying about thinking about calling us. We want you to focus. And by the way, get a good night's sleep. And I'm like, yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. We're on it. (laughs) You have written elegantly about how you traverse the barrier that I was talking about that's the interpersonal interaction with family and the patients and the people who are emotionally, their lives are completely thrown into, you know, torrential winds and they don't know where it's going to land. And you have to constantly be going back and forth and back and forth through that zone that separates sort of the science from the feelings. And I just don't know how how anybody could ever master that? Well, it's um, it's a state of constant evolution, I think. And you cannot help but let your own personal experiences come into that. You know, how can you take out a tumor in a five-year-old girl and then come home to your own five-year-old daughter and not feel connected to that family in some way, you know? And that's going to be particularly pronounced in cases where you're not able to save the child. And I, I think it's important that we not gloss over this. Um, would you maybe tell us about treating Delayla, uh, Delayla, who had gone blind? Well, sure. There's a lot of those stories over a 20-year period of time. And some of them are in the emergency room or the ICU where it's clear that a child's not going to survive. Oftentimes not. That's from trauma. But there are There are also other things that can happen, intracerebral hemorrhages and so forth. But then there's also families that you've known for a while. That tends to be kids that have malignant tumors. Delayla was, you know, a young girl. She was fully blind when she came in. Her mom noticed that she was bumping into a door. And she had an MRI scan, and the MRI showed about a grapefruit-sized tumor kind of on the backside of her head on the left. It was just had raised the pressure inside of her head. And she had been having some headaches, but it was really just manifested by not being able to see worse and worse over time. And so, um, you know, we took her on to the OR and took the tumor out. And I could tell that it was going to end up being malignant just based on kind of what it was like in the operating room. And, you know, kind of shared a special moment with her mom after surgery to be able to tell her that she could see. Uh, But I really wanted to kind of decouple the joy of that from what type of tumor it was. And, and plus, you know, you learn as a neurosurgeon over time, you don't ever tell the family what the path is until you know what the path is. There's nothing worse than being told that it's benign and then, you know, have our pathology colleagues come back and say, well, it turns out it's malignant. So I remember going in and talking to Delayla's mom and just telling her that it looked like it was malignant and that I would have her meet with our oncology specialist who had been waiting to talk to them. And then over the course of her next year and a half or so, she went through radiation therapy and then she had a recurrence. And then her recurrence led to another recurrence. And there was another surgery in there and a little infection we had to wash out. And by the end of all of it, she was this kind of vibrant child who at the beginning would, she had a ukulele that she would play and and threaten to play more unless we would give her what she wanted, like an all ice cream meal kind of stuff. (laughs) But by the end of it, you know, she was just in bed and you could tell that she was tired and, you know, her body was kind of swollen from the steroids that she had been on to help control some of the brain swelling. And 
there were some stitches to take out and I usually have other people that can help do that. You know, I've got brain surgeon stuff to do. I can't, you know, go take stitches out. But uh, what I realized is that I had this conversation with her. We talked about a trip to Disney World that was going to be taken care of by the wonderful Make-A-Wish Foundation. And I talked to her mom, Leslie. And then I just walked out and had this realization that it was probably the last time I was ever going to talk to him. I mean, I, I knew that was the case. And so I had this realization that I, it was going to be me to take her stitches out. So I went and grounded up all the stuff you need and went back in and, and really just kind of gently turned her towards the, towards the window and towards the TV and just kind of clipped out those stitches like the same way I would have clipped an aneurysm under the microscope, just, you know, with barely a movement of the hand and got those stitches out and I said goodbye to her and gave Leslie a hug, her mom. And and I remember uh, walking out and just feeling this wash over me. You know, usually I'm accompanied by three or four people on rounds, but it was just me by myself. And I just remember kind of beelining for this room that I hoped would be empty and um, and just kind of punching into that room through the door quickly and closing it, putting a chair on it and just kind of sliding down the wall and just crying uh, just because I'm, you know, she was just such a good person. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to make it seem like a TV scene, but TV scenes, I guess, are really based on real life. And the reality of it is, is that, um, you know, we connect with our patients that we know for a while. And it's definitely a grief that we feel when we know that despite everything that's been done, that somebody is going to die. And I think that the way that I can try to mitigate that grief is, you know, when I look back, I think about the conversations that I'd had with Delayla, but also with her mom and making sure her mom was informed and making sure Leslie understood what was going on and making sure that, you know, years later, she would feel like that she made all the right decisions for her daughter and that she would feel good about the choices that she made during that really difficult time. And so I think to some extent, there's the saving of the person's life, but there's only so much can be done against disease now. And so there's also the saving the life of the living. And I think that helps me in times when I, you know, are faced with challenging decisions and discussions with patients. It seemed only right to talk not just about the triumphs, but also the tragedies that are inevitable in a medical career like this, and about the grace required to navigate those heartbreaking situations. Those cases, after all, are also part of all that moves us. But in just a moment, we're going to return to that initial spark that drew Dr. J. Wellens to this branch of medicine in the first place. You're listening to the Constant Wonder Podcast. I'm Marcus Smith. For all the fulfillment that Dr. J. Wellens may have experienced, along with the tragedies, while caring for people and for the incomparably beautiful and complex and awe-inspiring nervous system that people have, it was never a given that he would be doing any of this. Neurosurgery was just not the field that Jay Wellens thought he would be practicing in. Remember, he thought he was going to be a family practice physician, paid in chicken and vegetables, to use his words. What moved him to choose or opt out of family practice or cardiology and move over to neurology in the first place? Well, I talked to him about that, and as you'll hear in his answer, there's actually a direct line to awe and wonder. After you had already decided, I'm going to uh, go into medicine, at some point you picked neurology. And when you did that, you tell the story of almost getting up on your tiptoes, looking into, I don't know, was it an operating theater or something? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you couldn't take your eyes off of it. Yeah. What was so gripping that kept you captive? So... OR-16 was the neurosurgery OR, and I had initially thought neuroanatomy was just beautiful. The peripheral nerves, the nervous system, uh, it just clicked in my brain. Somehow I had a, uh, a place to understand it and, and to continue to study it. But the practice of neurosurgery itself 
just like we mentioned, I mean, it was high highs and low lows. And the low lows, when you're when you're practicing in a place where you're trying to bring people back from over the edge and you make it happen, that's great. But when you don't, that's hard. I spent a lot of my time trying to talk myself out of neurosurgery. I'll be a cardiologist. I love cardiology. It was fascinating, the heart and how you could listen to it and learn about the body and pediatrics and general surgery and vascular surgery. It was, I just realized there was so much in medicine that I really did love and I was learning a lot. But something about neurosurgery, it was just like a siren call. I kept walking past OR16 when I was on other rotations, not once, not twice, but every single solitary time I walked by, I would look up in the porthole to see what kind of operation they were doing in OR16. And I just really realized that I wasn't going to be able to shake it. Maybe I could, I could still become a neurosurgeon and connect with patients and learn about the human condition and do something of importance and impact. You know, there are people on this planet who still like to talk about life purpose. It's not just random. And um, I'm one of those. And so I'm wondering, it's kind of a wacky question, but did you really choose uh, neurosurgery or did neurosurgery choose you in a way? Uh, Was there something in the, in the realm of, uh, I know in faith traditions, people will talk about a calling. Yeah. I think maybe I began to feel called. I mean, not maybe. I mean, I know I was. Anybody that enters into a field where you're given an additional seven years plus four years of medical school, I think you have to be called. And and that calling can come in different ways. But in most neurosurgeons I know, and certainly most pediatric neurosurgeons I know, but most neurosurgeons I know that are that I work with do feel called to to help other people. Sure, you make a good living, and but the hours are crazy. But getting up in the middle of the night to help somebody who's otherwise wouldn't wouldn't make it, that's a good motivator. And at the end of the day, I think you can feel good about what you've done. So so I you know, I do feel like I was called to help people and also I think from Mississippi, I think you kind of have to be a good communicator for the most part of you're down here. So many people, we all communicate in stories. You know, I can't yeah. say hello in one minute, you know, under a minute. Just, it's remarkable. <laughs> but, you know, for me, I think definitely, as I look back, I cannot imagine what the journey of this life would look back had it not been lived in the way that it, it I did. You know, so I am washed by this sense of purpose and wonder when I reflect back. But, you know, you just don't have a lot of chance to, to reflect. But I know it's important to you, or you wouldn't have written this book. It's not just all about explaining pediatric neurology. You do reflect. And so, if, as you just said, you really don't have a lot of chance to reflect because of the demands of your job, when you do have time to reflect, is that like late at night or lying in bed or or, or what? It's more the opportunity on a long walk in the woods to really begin to appreciate the wonder of, of what we do. I write a little bit about the opportunity to do fetal surgery for fetuses that uh, have been diagnosed with spina bifida in utero. That basically means that the OBGYN doctors come in and open, expose the uterus, open it, and then the fetus is rotated and we dissect out the little abnormal spinal cord and close that and close the skin over the top of it. And then the uterus is closed and it's put back into the belly and the bread cooks in the oven for a few more weeks. But I tell you, that is a wondrous thing to be a part of, just the act of being in such an intimate and remarkable space as the womb, being able to kind of help out and intervene before birth is just remarkable. Does that have something to do with the idea that at that stage in life's formation, the mechanisms, all the biology of the human body is at this incredible stage. I think you've used the word pluripotent talking about certain cells. I don't know if that applies here, but the idea that we know that during gestation, man, things are going on like at lightning speed. Yeah, it's a remarkable time, you know, and uh, to intervene at 21 weeks and to to see exactly how we're formed. Um, Ultimately, when the fetus is delivered, it's now a baby, save the baby and save the uterus. I mean, th- that in and of itself, you kind of become an observer, right? In the middle of all this, this stuff that's happening, 
And that itself is wondrous. But to see a team acting in the way that they're supposed to, it's just, that's an amazing thing to be a part of too. I want to make sure I paint the right picture. I mean, car seats become really important. You're strapping your kids in car seats like Gunter in the Apollo missions, you know, putting a foot in their chest and strapping those things down tight. But that's because I've seen whole families wiped out, but the infant survive with maybe a broken arm because the parents in kind of their one last act were able to get their children in a car seat appropriately. You know, so on the one hand, it's a little bit like putting these spectacles on that have a different filter. And you see how fragile we are, and you see that suffering and grief does exist in this world. But on the other side of it, those same glasses can show you the wonder just looking around. And then working with these children uh, that I have over the past 20 years, 25 really, if you add the training part in, I mean, it's um, just their stories of resilience and hope. It all just imbues this sense of grace. It's just hard not to and, and purpose. You've been very willing to describe the interpersonal aspects, the social aspects of your work with patients and their families. I'm hopeful that you're going to be just as willing to share with us uh, some of your thoughts about the experience of of wonder as it relates just to the system of the human body, distinctly apart from, if you can do that, from the the people who are intellects or, or personalities or spirits. Marcus, there's no way to ignore the wonder of the human body. You know, I still remember the first time I saw the brachial plexus in the gross anatomy lab when I was a first-year medical student in Mississippi. It's this and, beautiful... And what is that? That's this beautiful um, group of nerves that exit from the neck and, and they, they weave together into a, into a pretty consistent pattern. And then they unweave into the nerves that innervate the muscles of the arm. It, it almost looks like macrame. Uh, it's just beautiful. And it's really consistent from person to person. There's a small amount of variability, but the brachial plexus in the infants that I operate on that have stretch injuries uh, that can occur after some traumatic deliveries, and the brachial plexus that I operate on in kids that have traumatic issues that occur at the age of 17 or 18, other than size of it, they're, they're basically very similar. And so I remember that feeling of just saying, like, this is beautiful. And then you travel into the spinal cord, and then you look at the brain itself, and then you study the internal anatomy of the brain, and you realize how much we know about the brain and how much we don't know about the brain. And how really the brain is the seat of the soul. And I know that a wonderful author by the name of John Stone talked about the literal versus the metaphorical heart. He was a cardiologist at Emory and had a big impact on me when I was a medical student. But, you know, I really think, and it's not just me, but I mean, you know, the brain is responsible for cognition, for movement, for interacting with the environment around us. And the fact that we navigate that, we go to work. We get our lunch pail, we go to work, we put our lunch pail in our locker, we round on our patients, we wash our hands, we go operate, you know, we're done when we're done and we go home and we either eat dinner with our family or leftovers or, or you pick up a taco on the way home. But the point is, is that you've, you've had this remarkable kind of navigation of what it is that makes us human. And so for me and for the people that I work with and for, I think, pediatric neurosurgery and most neurosurgeons that I know, it's a wondrous place to, to navigate. And I think that the majority of people I know have never let that go. That's an important part of, of our identity and what we do, and I'll stick by that. So in the course of your workaday life, you clock in, you clock out, you become a witness to some really important features of what makes us human. You have a very specialized perspective it's very different from those of us who don't open up brains and talk to patients who have had their brains opened up. But I don't want to let you go before asking if in everything you observe about the human creature and our condition has any connection to to other stuff out there in the world. I, I think one way to ask about this is simply, do you see uh, corollaries? Well, I think the short answer is yes. I think you can see it on a microscopic level and a macroscopic level. And what I mean by that is if you take an individual axon, the nerve that has a cell body and has processes, dendrites, and axonal, the length that connect from one axon to the next, and you maybe take a micro picture of that, and then you put that 
next to how a leaf looks under a microscope or how water will flow through organic matter and look for the patterns and the swirls. It's amazing how similar you can see these things at a, at a microscopic level. And then at a macroscopic level, I think it's really patterns and organizations of collectives, of seeing humanity as we move through our day and move through society, not, not just as, as an individual, but also as a larger group. Because if you think about white and red blood cells moving through the blood, moving through the body and going from an artery to an arterial to a capillary where they're squeezing through one at a time, then they're giving off their oxygen and then the red blood becomes blue and then it's a venule, then it's a vein, then it's, the, then it's back to the lungs and it's back to the heart. It's kind of like those UPS and Amazon delivery people doing their thing. Well, I mean, it is. It is. It's kind of like people squeezing through the door of a subway in Tokyo. It's just, it's impossible to not see these patterns microscopically, but also macroscopically as well. And at the end of the day, once you've realized that, you say, huh, okay. And then you go home and go to bed? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. That's it. Yeah. No, but if you're lucky, <laughs> if you're lucky, Marcus, you get a chance to reflect on it. And if you're even luckier, you get a chance to write about it. Dr. Jay Wellens has written about his experiences as a doctor in his book, All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his young patients, and their stories of grace and resilience. I found in this man, Jay Wellens, one of the most approachable experts I've ever met. I'm grateful to him for talking with us. I also found that he is a guy who has a way with words. And just to prove that, I'm going to share with you a little bit of extra audio. It's too good to edit this out of the episode. As we were checking our mics before recording, I asked him just for a few words, you know, to set the levels of his microphone. And never in all my experience doing this have I ever had anybody come back with a recitation from memory, uh, something from the Canterbury Tales. You want to eavesdrop on his mic check? Sure. Wandera Priya with the shortest suta, the drush of March hath passed it to the ruta, and bothered every vein in switch liqueur of which vertu engendered is the... This episode of Constant Wonder was produced by Tenery Taylor with help from Paige Crumperman-Darrington and Addie Mangum. Thanks to our readers, Heather Bigley, Jenna McMartin, Paige Crumperman-Darrington, and Colson Darrington. Sound design by Addie Mangum and Josh Cloward of the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. Spirit hath in every Holton hath the younger blood. The younger son, and sorry. And the, the attribution is crucial for me at this point. <laughs> uh, was it Beowulf or was it Chaucer? <laughs> it was Chaucer. It was Chaucer. Chaucer. It was, uh, hey! It's, it's, it's in there. <laughs> <laughs>